So having said that, I am Chuck Stecker. How about that? I'm the guy that he was speaking about or two there. And with the understanding that, uh, one, I am the teaching pastor here at Summit Church. I, too, want to welcome you and thank you for being here today. And thank you for our folks that are online with us uh, as we do this. We're in a great series. And it really, it really centers on the season of Advent. We'll talk more about that at the very end. But I do want to tell you that uh, our staff has worked hard, Marie, and specifically for this, for our family ministry, and we're all part of the family. So whether you're here by yourself or any configuration of a family, you are family. So when we use the word, we want you to know this means you, okay? And so with that, if you haven't picked one up, I would just encourage you to do that. There's, you know, no obligation with that whatsoever. But just to say, hey, we want to equip you as part of this community of faith to, uh, to grow your faith and give you resources to do that. We're in a series called Christmas at the Summit. I love that and the idea that, you know, when we talk about a summit, that peak there, and you get to be here and, you know, I've, uh, I've done one 14er, and it was thanks to men in this church, actually, that uh, convinced me that that was something my life would be incomplete without doing. Uh, I've done it. I don't need to do it again. You know, we were six hours up and, you know, four hours down. I will tell you a story. There was another family at the church, and we were six hours up. And when I got to the top, it was like, wow. You know, when you think you've done it, but then you realize there's a lot more ahead of you just going down. And at the same time we reached the summit of Pikes Peak, the train pulled up. And two families from the church here got off, and they looked fresh and everything. They thought it was just wonderful. And they asked us, you know, which train did you take? And uh, that was not the high point of my career there, but, they, but the, an understanding. But this idea of Christmas at the summit and what that means, and our message today is he said, Jordan did a, just a tremendous job in, uh, last week of taking us through peace, but today we're going to talk about this issue of joy and the title for me is, the message is very simply, The Incredible Gift of Joy. It is a gift we will go in, but today is the incredible gift that we have that God has given us of joy. The big idea, joy is an internal emotion resulting in an outward expression of our faith. Joy is an internal emotion. It's something that's happening here in our heart and through our spirit that God gives us, that it results in an outward expression of faith. And you know, I, not everybody is an extrovert, introvert, or all of those different things. And this isn't to mean that when we say an, an outward expression, doesn't mean we're bouncing off the walls and, you know, ziplining through, you know, that kind that you have to see it with that. But the idea is the fact that joy does result in this outward expression it's in our smile. It's in our demeanor. There, people know there is something different when they see a person that has joy, and you know it, and you feel it, and you see it, regardless of some other things that the culture would tell you. And so when we look at this incredible gift of joy, we've got another long scripture, but we're going through the Christmas story. And another reason for you to have a copy of the Advent guide that we're using here. We're going to go to Luke, and um, I realize we did it, the words look kind of small there, but in just reading, and what will make it easier, and the first service did this perfectly, and what they did is I read this, they all memorized it word by word. I thought that was amazing, and then when they walked out, they all knew every word of this. So I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. 
That's a joke, by the way. Okay, we're going to Luke 2, starting in verse 8, and here's what God tells us in His Word. He says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Great statement. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing. You know, when I was reading this and I thought, have you ever heard of the birth of Christ referred to as seeing this thing? But it just kind of caught me there in the verbiage. And it says, let us go over to one another. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it, it, they wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But listen to this last statement. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And you read that, and it is, And Mary treasured all of these things she had been told in her heart. And, you know, it wasn't in my notes initially, and I was reading through this, and again, and getting ready, and I go, at first the question was to me, you know, God was kind of saying, what things do you treasure in your heart? Not things you like, not things that make you feel good, but think about the terminology that God has given us here. He says, what things do you treasure in your heart? And those can be smaller things, bigger things, doesn't matter. There are those things, and I begin to process through that. And maybe as your pastor, let me ask you this question. As you're sitting here right now, before you think of anything else, just pause for a second and think, what is it that you treasure in your heart? Because when you identify those, I think it opens the doorway to this joy-filled, joyful life when we realize what God has given us that we can actually treasure in our hearts. A couple of weeks ago when I spoke and I separated out this issue of being thankful and grateful, you know, two things, and that they are sometimes words used interchangeably when in fact they're not. We use them as if they have the same meaning when in fact they don't. And you know, there's a couple of other words that the same thing applies to. Very often people, we say joy, and they say, well, yeah, I have joy, I'm happy. Well, they're not the same thing. But we use the word happy, we use the word joy, sometimes as if they're interchangeable. And we'll see where God separates these out for us. But here's what we've got to get first. Happiness, to be happy is an emotion that is normally brought on by external circumstances. Think about this. I ask you, what do you treasure in your heart? But I ask you this, 
What is it that makes you happy? Just recall back on a time and go, you know what, I was happy then. What I want to suggest to you is, your happiness was external circumstances, and you have two questions. It's not just what makes you happy, but think about this. When you were happy, how long did happiness actually last? How long did happiness actually last? And when we understand that that happiness is based upon external issues, then we realize that you know, sometimes we respond, we rely on others to make us happy. We have uh, several granddaughters, and I think of one in particular, Hannah. When she was three or four, she's 23 now, she's with Young Life down in Colorado Springs, but we always used to call it Hannah's thinker face, because we'd be sitting at the table or someplace, and you'd see Hannah going through this, and the mind was working and all of those, and we would say to each other, Hannah's got her thinker face on, just get ready, because whatever comes next at three or four years old, it's going to be incredible. But on this one occasion, we're sitting around the table, and Hannah had her thinker face on, and we were talking and so forth, but then Hannah looks up, and in that moment, she goes, I'm not happy. You know, as a papa, a grandfather, my first inclination is, get over it. But I would say it with love and with sensitivity. No. You know, you're a papa. I've got, I've got to say these things. And you go, oh my gosh, what am I doing wrong? My granddaughter is not happy at my house. You see, but you realize that what she was really saying is, it's not just that I'm not happy. When you dive deep into that statement, it was really that, okay, everybody, you're not making me happy. That was really the statement because her happiness was based upon external circumstances that she would, you know, look at and go, okay, I'm happy now, meaning we were doing the right things for her. You know, and very often we have to ask the question, you know, when we say I'm not happy, is it really this issue that do you have the feeling that others aren't making you happy? that your happiness is de depending upon Him. So I said, what makes you happy? Well, then the next question would be, so when you're happy, who's responsible to make you happy? If you're not happy, who's not fulfilling their responsibility to make you happy? Because clearly happiness, people have to be responding and making you happy and, you know, fulfilling your world right there, right? And that's what she was doing at a very young age. And, you know, we even get this in the culture, 1988. Now, there's several of you right here will have no clue what I'm talking about. That's why descriptions are important, but it was a song. And in 1989, it was the Song of the Year, 1989 Grammy Awards, all of this stuff, Record of the Year, Male Pop Vocal Performance of the Year. And get it, here was the song. It was kind of a reggae beat, right? It was called Don't Worry, Be Happy. And people were all over the place. Something would happen literally in meetings. You'd hear people going, don't worry, be happy. Go, well, life is just that simple, isn't it? All we have to do is sing this song, because obviously it's the number one song that had very significant meaning to everybody. And there was so much truth in that, right? Don't worry, be happy. Well, I need to tell you that as your pastor, that doesn't work. I wish I could tell you, oh, by the way, you having a tough day? Oh, don't worry. Just be happy. You can change all of that. But as we've already described, that happiness is 
generally determined by external events, and somebody else is responsible for those. That's the nice thing about this issue of happy. We can always blame someone else, can't we? If I'm not happy, I can look around and say, they're not making me happy, they're not making me happy. This situation, it's not making me happy, but it's never my fault, is it? Thank you. But I think she was saying, Chuck, it is your fault. Get over it and move on. <laughs> How's that for a deal, right? So we look at this, but now we get to this issue of joy, because joy is something very different. And even in the culture, you know, and I, I, you look at definitions, and we go to this, and it's interesting. I don't know if you know or not, but like Merriam-Webster, used to be Webster Dictionary, Merriam, then they combined. But do you know, they change their definitions each year to accommodate the culture, Absolutely true. You can go back and look at definitions from the dictionary today, and you can go back 20 years and it reads differently. If you really want to see that, there's a Daniel Webster dictionary from the 1830s, about this big. We have one at the house. It's incredible. But you look up words to say, what did they originally mean, right? And then you look up the words today and they have no similarity at all. You wonder, like, am I on a different planet? Because they change the meaning of the words based upon how they're being used in our culture and the meaning of those. But when you look at this, in the Daniel Webster, in the Miriam Webster, it says, joy is an emotion, okay, evoked by well-being, right, success, good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Wow. Well-being, I feel good, I'm happy. Success, I'm successful. Good fortune, or by the prospect, now there's a good chance I'm going to win the lottery. You know, that brings about this joy based upon this. And one of the definitions, and one of the sites that I follow is called Just Disciple. And maybe it's because I think churches need to be disciple-making bodies of Christ, you know. But it, you look at this thing, and here's the definition that it gives us there. Joy is a feeling of good pleasure and happiness that is dependent on who Jesus is rather than on who we are or what is happening around us. It's a closer definition for me, but there's still something that I take issue with here. When I look at this thing, the author stated on this, you know, after that, the joy comes from the Holy Spirit abiding in God's presence from the word, hope in his word, right? From hope in his word. So there's a lot to that. But you remember, the author stated, joy is this feeling of good pleasure and happiness that is dependent upon who Jesus is rather than on who we are. That's where I take issue. Here's why. Because of Jews, who Jesus is, that is determined who we are, isn't it? You know, my joy is because of knowing who I am and whose I am because of Jesus and what he did on that cross. You know, some time ago I was at a church and I asked them, well, where's the cross? And they said, well, we, you know, we bring it out for special events. And I said, you know, the cross is the event. Is there any other event I mean, we can go to the birth of Christ and all. I know that's good. But Easter, 
The event is the cross that Jesus hung on and died, you know, was crucified, put in a tomb, and rose as He said He would three days later. And because of that, that determines who we are by our faith in Jesus Christ. So when we say, well, it's what Jesus did, not because of who we are, and I go, no, no. My joy is because of who I am, because of what Jesus did. That's what I have to take joy in, in knowing who I am and whose I am. And if you're sitting here today and you're going, you know what, Chuck? I can talk about that with you. I'm not sure about that. Whatever, I'll be available. And so will our prayer teams. Because if we don't get that part right, joy is irrelevant, isn't it? If you do not have a foundation of who you are and whose you are because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross, there is no joy for you. Just keep seeking happiness because that's the best you'll get. But God doesn't say that's the best He wants for us. Sometimes we settle and we say, well, it's the best I can get. We have to ask the question, but is that the best God wants? And I think when we settle for something other than the joy from knowing who we are and whose we are, because of what was done on the cross, we settle for something good, but we miss the best that God has for us. And I'm not even sure settling for happiness really is that good when we miss everything else about it, you know? And so when we look at this, we say, well, you know, the joy is because of who I am and whose I am. But now, let's go even farther than that, in a sense. Nowhere do I find happy as a fruit of the Spirit. Nowhere. I don't find anything in the Bible that says, all of my followers will just be really happy. I don't find it. And the fact is, there's only about 29,000 different translations now, you know what I mean? But I don't, I haven't been through all of them. I don't find it in any of them. There is no place that says, when you know Jesus Christ, you'll just be happy. And everybody around you will know, oh, they're happy. They must know Jesus. That's not what God's Word says, is it? So when we look at this, what does God say about this? In Galatians 5, and 23, here's what God tells us. But the fruit of the Spirit, okay, what bears fruit in us is love, underline now, joy, peace. We heard about that from Jordan last week. Credible message, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. They can't legislate against that coming out again, you know, from you when you know Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us here. And so, you know, why is it important then to look for the fruits of the Spirit? Because he tells us in Matthew, kind of some of the red letters here, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, he goes on in Matthew and he says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he goes on and explains this. And Jesus says, but now, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Don't think so. Are figs coming from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree, it bears bad fruit. And then it does this. It says, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And then he says this, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. There are times God has to tell me things, well, let's just say several times. A lot of times he uses my wife to tell me things several times. That's not funny. 
Well, it is to her. Okay. So somewhere between God, the Holy Spirit, and my wife, I get told things multiple times. But it's okay because the repetitiveness, right, emphasizes things that we should. So when Jesus says this, and then he said, let me just say this again, this, I think there's a, there's a teaching in that that we've got to get. So when you look at this in the scripture that comes out of Matthew, right, here's what Jesus starts with. You will recognize them. Pause. Let's just stop. Who is them? Them is us. You get this? Them, when Jesus says, you will recognize them, the Christ followers, this is us. This isn't an evangelical message, you know, to, to reach out for those that don't know Christ, but he's saying, for those that know Jesus Christ, them, you, me, right? He says this part here, you will recognize them, or I could say us, by their fruits. And then how does he finish? Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And that's what he does. And I don't want to make the mistake of sounding like, okay, well, I said, don't worry, be happy. Maybe now I just need to say as your pastor, just don't worry, be joyful. We'll just shift it to the right thing, that God wants you to have joy, not happiness. So all we have to do is make this shift from, don't worry, be joyful. Well, that doesn't work that way, does it? And we know that it doesn't work that way. So we've got to recognize that joy is not just a fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is the gift that God gives us. And when I said the gift of, the incredible gift of joy as we started here, and as a gift from God, it's good and perfect. In James 1.17, here's what God tells us. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. He doesn't change or shadow due to the change. So he doesn't change the father of lights. So what he's saying is, you're always in the light. God's not moving, so all of a sudden you find yourself in darkness. God's not moving, so all of a sudden you find yourself in the shadow. He says, that doesn't happen there. So every good and perfect gift. And I want to go back to a couple of scriptures from a couple of weeks ago. And he said this in, in Ephesians 5.20. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything, Right? And we just went right there for in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what are we giving thanks for? Well, we just said every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of light. We need to be giving thanks for all of those good and perfect gifts. And we've identified. And so in the second scripture in Thessalonians, the same one we use, it says, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because when we look at this, and we just said happiness is very often determined by our circumstances, right? Then what Satan tries to do is get us to focus on our circumstances and not focus on God. This idea that if our circumstances only change, then we could be happy, and everything in our life would be perfect or nearly perfect, as good as it could be in that process. But when we look at this, I need to tell you that and you've heard me say this before, but it's if you're struggling today and you go, you know, Chuck, that's, a, that's nice, and I would love to have joy, but I just don't have it right now. My circumstances are the things, and I'll need to process this a little bit more. Here's the very first thing I'll tell you. You struggling or finding yourself in a difficult time, trying to figure out what your next step is, all of those things. Saints, listen to me. 
that does not make you a bad Christian or person. It makes you human. It makes you a child of the living God who is living in a fallen world. That's where we're at. So for us to think that, you know, I tell me one of the things I, I get this impression that so often we paint the picture with people that when you know Jesus Christ, your life becomes like a Disney movie. Every step you take, the bluebirds sing and the flowers bloom, and there's never a bad day in your life from that point on. Really? I don't know where those people are living, but that's not my life, and I don't think it's your life. But my assurance to you is, is God's not done with you. My assurance to you is that if you're struggling, you're in the right place because you're with other people who are struggling at times. And some of us today, do you get that? You're in the right place, and it doesn't make you a bad person, doesn't make you a bad Christian, and you have not lost your faith. You're a human living in a fallen world, and God is still with you. But all the promises of God are the same. Okay, we've got to be in this. Now, when he comes to this and you say, but the, the greatest thing that comes against my joy is one word. You ready? Worry. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I would ask you to think about it. How many of you right now are in a place where there's things you worry about? Come on, folks. We're heading into Christmas. I know everybody's got to put on a great face. You know, we're worried about this, we're worried about that. We've got people in this church that God has brought here, and, and wow, some of them we just prayed with this last service, with just so many burdens, and they're just the word worry. I have a good friend and a brother. Now, he's in heaven, but he's still my friend and brother. Uh, I did his graveside service. Um, here's memories for you. When he went to be with the Lord and the service was scheduled for a Saturday, I was scheduled to preach in this church about seven years ago, on a Sunday morning. Yet going to that in Kansas City was something we weren't going to miss. So we went there, Billy and I on Friday spent the night. Saturday I did the graveside service. We had their celebration of life and it got late. We jumped in the car to drive back. I was committed to preach here on, sir, on Sunday. I drove... Uh, Drove about an hour, I guess. And my wife, and this she only said once. She might have said it twice. She said, pull over. And uh, I did. And for the next five hours, she drove me, getting back at 2 o'clock in the morning, told me to sleep. I had to preach the next day. She drove me home. Following morning, I was here, or that same morning, I was here to deliver the word. That's a sidebar. Not that it has any meaning in my life or whatsoever. Just stay with me. My friend said this: "Worry is concern out of control. Worry is concern out of control." Now, what this means is, when we say something's out of control, think about this: it's out of your control. The only thing God wants out of your control is Him. God wants you to give control to Him. But when things in our life are spinning out of control, right, that means they have begun to control us versus us controlling them. See, God doesn't tell you in the Bible, don't be concerned. He said, be concerned. 
Those are important things. I'm concerned for my family or I'm concerned this. I was concerned this morning in terms of just, frankly, I was concerned this morning about standing here and representing God well enough in front of you. And Billy asked me last night, he says, are you nervous in this? And I had a little bit, you know, it was just something about this message and so forth, right? And being concerned, God doesn't have a problem with that. A mother concerned for her children, people concerned for people that they love. We can go through all of this, but when you worry about it, God says, don't worry because you're giving whatever that subject is control over you, and nothing should control you other than the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what Jesus said? Stay here for I give to you a counselor, someone, and he meant to be, this is your life coach. This is where the only control should be. But he's saying, you know, in the midst of that, you know, don't let worry control you. It will eat you alive and you will lose joy in the process. Greatest enemy of joy for me is this issue of worry. Now, I would like to tell you as your pastor, I stand before you as a perfect man. That's just not something I deal with anymore. You might as well laugh because when the lightning strikes, we're all going together. When a man stands in front of you representing God and lies to you, no, I can't tell you that. I still battle that at times and I have to get control of that to say, oh my goodness. And you know, there was a study done many years ago and the study showed that 90% of what people worry about has either already taken place or they have no control over it. So get this, of the things that people worry about that they identified, only 10% did they have any influence over that situation. They were just worried and that's what Satan does to us. So when you look at this and he says doesn't worry in Matthew 6 25, here's what God tells us here. Therefore, I tell you not to be anxious. When you read the word anxious, that's very often interchangeable in terms of our translation with the word worry, with the root word. Do not be anxious or worry about your life. You know, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor your body, you will, or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus then closes out that part of the teaching. It's in red letters and he says this in verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious or worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious enough for itself, sufficient for the day in its own trouble. Let's deal with today, right? And then one of the things that he tells us here is that you focus here on the path that God has for you. Where is God leading you in this process? And I love that because God, this much I can promise you as your pastor, he will not lead you down a path of worry. God is not going to put you on worry street. You know, you look up and say, oh, this street's named worry. I guess God's got me right where he wants me. That's not where God's going to put you. And what God tells you on this pathway here that he has for you, he says, you will make known. This is in Psalm 16, 11. He says, you will make known to me the path of life. Remember, remember what Jesus said, I give you life, I give you death, I give you blessing, give, right? you know, I give you curse, blessing, choose blessing, choose life. Well, isn't that what God's saying right here? Look, I will make, to you, make known to you the path of life. Choose life is what he's saying. In your presence there is, and I love this, fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pleasures forevermore. There is fullness of joy on that path. Does he say that on that path there's not going to be difficulties? Does he say on that path 
We don't, uh, we don't need to be together in church. We can do all of this on our own. We don't need to help each other. We don't need to pray for each other. You know, you just get on that. Everything is perfect. It's not what God says at all. You are here today, and I believe you are here for the right reason, that we're in this together. And that process of helping one another as we go through this. I want to give you some benefits of joy of what God says, like gratitude. Interestingly enough, when I researched this issue of gratitude and said, what's the benefit? My goodness, the overwhelming benefit of gratitude was good health. Do you know that? Do you know what the overwhelming benefit of joy is in the world as they see it? It's good health. People live longer, happier, all of the different things about that. There's that word happier, but there's that part of it where they see something different in their circumstances, right? And then the second reason is, is that when you focus on joy instead of happiness, it helps us keep our eyes on Jesus, not on the world. And the benefit of that is, and the, that part is, when we're focused on Jesus, we see victory in our circumstances no matter how difficult they are. And that is true. When we focus on Jesus, God will help us see victory in our circumstances that we can't see otherwise. We will see our circumstances very often as hopeless. And it's hard to have joy in that, isn't there? The third thing here is, and I, I love listening with Jordan and him being a Marine and me having served in the Army, uh, and I, I tell people, you know, Jordan and I can joke about the Army and the Marines, but if you didn't serve in those, you can't joke about that. That's off limits, you know what I'm saying? Okay, but I love the fact of listening to that man speak, and there's a common thing that we would both share with you is there are certain things in the military we refer to as force multipliers. What a force multiplier is, is it takes something you have and it multiplies the effectiveness of it, okay? So we look at things, and one of the things that's a great force multiplier in the military is courage. I mean, it's just that simple. You take two units right there, two military units assigned to the same mission to do the same thing at the same time, and one of them has developed this, this characteristic of courage, and they believe in what they're doing and so forth, and they have the same equipment. Over here, you got the same thing, and they don't have that. The force multiplier to make one successful versus the other is going to be courage, right? And so here, a force multiplier within Summit Church, I believe is joy. I believe there's a reason for us to be here together and to understand that God desires for us to know who we are and whose we are and to dwell in the joy because of what He did. Now, I'm going to give you some steps on this, okay? And here's the deal. There are five things that I'm going to tell you that are factors in developing joy. We've talked about just in knowing who you are and whose you are there. But here are the five things. The very first thing is the Word of God. You know, when we put our trust in God and we, we look to the Word of God for answers for us, and I'm not talking about, okay, everybody needs to just quit your job and become seminary students. That's not it at all. There are resources on our website. There are key things that can help guide you through, whether it's daily devotions, things of that nature. And look, for the young people, oh my gosh, some of the stuff that's on there that help us grow is just incredible. But the Word of God is critical to us. The second thing is prayer. Look, there is a reason why we have prayer teams here. There is a reason why we have a hammer and nails over there for you to put 
your prayer requests there because we believe at Summit Church, foundational to this church must be prayer. You know what? We can do a lot of other things, but if we don't build a foundation of prayer and don't build a foundation of prayer that you can count on in this church, I think we'll miss our mark on this thing. But I know this, if we build a foundation of prayer in this church, for all of us, not just a prayer team or one or two, for all of us, build a foundation of prayer. I know that God wants to use that for us to be an impact in this community. The third thing there is trust. Uh, very simply, and at some point we're going to talk a lot more about this. It's one thing to love God. It's another thing to trust God. I know a lot of people that will tell you how much they love God, but you get to it and in their lives they don't truly really trust God. The fourth there is we've got to be part of a community of faith. And that's one of the things that, one, I'm so excited about here at Summit, but understand as a community of faith, there are steps to grow. One of the things here on this, and I'll ask him to put that up there, but it's just a, a slide, but we've got growth track. If you haven't been through the growth track at this church, it's designed to help you grow. It's designed to help you step by step in the process to position you, to understand who you are, whose you are, to understand the gifts that you have and present to you opportunities, not necessarily just to serve in this church, but to say, what does God want to do with you? Where does God want to use you in such a powerful way? By the way, food's provided there too. How about that? Okay. But then the last thing here is that irrational generosity. You know, I hadn't really heard those words so clearly till our legacy weekend. Jim Ladd, lead pastor for here for several years. Doug Miller, pastor at Plum Creek, planted by this church. Both of them used the term irrational generosity. You know, the thing that I think one of the things that Summit Church has been known for, Grace Summit, 40 years, has been just that, irrational generosity. You know, and so, yes, you know, Chris talked to you and he showed you the socks and the tags. Um, just do whatever God wants you to do with that. But if you can bring in a pack of socks, bring them next week. If you want to grab a tag off of that tree and say, you know what? And look at them and say, this is what I can do and what I'd like to do and so forth. And so I, I will tell you, before Billy got here a couple of weeks ago, I grabbed a tag off of there and she looked at it and she says, what is this? Why didn't you get a tag of something that I knew? Well, then fortunately, you'll see right here, Tyler, he reads and said, here's what it is. He's got little girls. And he said, that's exactly what it is. And so I went this time, Billy, I got us one, honey. Hot wheels, tracks, cars, hats, gloves for Jack. He's seven years old. We got this one, kiddo, okay? So basically it's this, deciding to live a joy-filled, joyful life is a significant force multiplier in this community of faith, but it's also a force multiplier for you personally in your life. It will make you more effective. And I just wanna emphasize, I don't know how you can have true joy without knowing Jesus Christ. I'm gonna ask you to just ponder that because when we go into our response time, there's a prayer team on both sides, there's a cross, and there's people that want to pray with you.